0: Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have on the show Dr. Andrew Fiala, professor of ethics and philosophy at Fresno State. This was a fantastic conversation and we had an incredible amount to talk about. We talked about ethics, ancient philosophy, theories of war, vegetarianism, the popularity of stoicism in Silicon Valley, and much more. Please enjoy our conversation and Baker will take us there. West
1: Fresno's Best. Fresno's best.
0: So, Andrew, where do you like to eat in Fresno?
1: Uh, I'm a vegetarian, so that narrows it down quite a bit.
0: (laughs) Yes. That is tough in Fresno. That's not, I mean, you can get vegetarian food at many places, but oftentimes it's like a pity dish. Like they feel bad yeah. for you, so they give you something. So where 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 is where is the least pitiful dishes in Fresno?
1: Yeah, so we usually go to Indian restaurants or Thai or Vietnamese, you know, something like that. Um, but my my favorite little Vietnamese restaurant got closed down during oh, no. the. COVID. Um, it's called Jasmine Garden. It's across from Fresno State, and you know I'm a professor at Fresno State. We we'd go there for lunch. Uh, this, the people that worked there had taken my classes when they were students, you know? Um, And it was one of those like tragedies of COVID, the the things out of business now it's sad.
0: (laughs) Yeah. One will hope that uh, they'll come back in a new, in a new format or a new location or something, but it's just hard because I mean, it it's, we've talked about this many times on the show, how thin the margins are when you're, you know, when you're making food for a living. Um, I I'm curious because I've, been on this journey, um, of finding a good Thai food in Fresno. Where's, where, where where's good Thai food in Fresno?
1: Well, you know, on Shaw Avenue, there's the Thai house, which I think it's somewhere in Shaw and Cedar in that vicinity. Um, they have cool little booths in there. Got it. Then there's the, there's one that we go to up on Herndon. It's like Herndon and Cedar. Um, the name is, is escaping me right now, but, um, there's, there's a bunch of those like tucked in little corners around Fresno.
0: Yeah, I mean that's where you find the sneaky good ethnic food is in strip malls, um, yeah. you know, and it's, it's <laughs> I don't know, the strip mall is just so ubiquitous that you just kind of, and you just assume, you just kind of blanket everything with the quality of the strip mall that it's in, and that's yeah. oftentimes uh, an error in our thinking that just because something is located next to cigarette emporium does not necessarily mean it's bad food. Um, and you know, I, but we all, ha, we all have, we all fall victim to that. I think it's, yeah, it's,
1: no, it's not like, you know, Los Angeles guys to live in LA, um, you know, years ago where you go down to the beach, there's all these, you know, cool little things in Redondo beach and, um, we don't have like walking neighborhoods here really, you know, so you got to drive and you're going to have to park. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. So all that, it, all that necessitates infrastructure and infrastructure. That's, you know, requires, I, I, I mean, who, who, I mean, I guess people own strip malls and it is their job to maintain them. I don't know how that works, but um, it, it is, it is an interesting, maybe I should explore that. Um, so for me, the Thai food dish that I just go back for and I've been craving um, is panang curry. I mean, it's just, it's the thing I think about. Uh, what do you order at a Thai place?
1: Yeah, we get that and pad thai, um, which they can do with tofu. And then, you know, we're not really super strict vegetarians. So we'll eat egg like that comes in pad thai. We'll eat shrimp occasionally. Um, yeah. And then, you know, the other, um, in addition to Thai, we go to Indian places. So there's um, the corner of Herndon and Blackstone, Tandoori Nights, which is strip mall, hole in the wall, Uh, but they're so generous in there, like they have huge portions, it's reasonably priced, and it's really good, so in fact, um, that's like the place we'll go for for our anniversary kind of thing, you know, like let's celebrate and go get the big huge piles of Indian food.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the that's an underrated thing about a Central Valley. It's just people have this expectations of portions, so you essentially buy four meals when you pay for two, which is wonderful. Um, I don't mind taking home Thai food; that it transfers well to the next day. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, it's fun to have uh, an expert in ethics on, um, and I, I, you know, I want to start in kind of a, a funny place, which is talking about personal ethics. Um, And so I listened to this great podcast uh, with uh, this economist that I follow, Tyler Cowen, and he was interviewing a really famous psychologist. I guess he's a psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. And Daniel Kahneman did a bunch of the groundbreaking research in human biases and uh, our perceptions. And um, one of the questions they asked him was, you know, given that you're 50 years at this point, because I think he was starting in the 70s, um, of exploration to human bias, do you find yourself um, a little, you know, more impervious to biases? And Daniel, who's an Israeli, you know, and has that kind of sense of humor, uh, kind of smiled and said, "Not really. Um, in fact, I would say I'm no bad, better than the average person." Um, and so, I guess um, what he did say, though, was that there is this kind of additional burden that's placed on you when you know a lot about something. Um, and given that you are a professor of ethics, uh, does that add kind of an extra weight or burden to your personal ethical decision-making?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, of course. Um, you know, cause I, I'm not only, you know, I teach 300 students a semester at Fresno State and I direct the ethics center. So I'm putting on public events in the community and then I write this column for the B that's about ethics and religion. Um, I kind of have to watch my behavior, you know, like I'm, I'm I'm aware of my persona in a sense. Um, Am I more ethical than anyone else? No, I'm just a normal person. You know, (laughs) Um, I have my faults, like everyone else says, like Socrates had faults, you know, like Plato had faults, but um, there is a kind of, Sense of responsibility I have as a, a public figure. You know, I'm not the mayor or something. I'm not the sheriff, but um, a lot of people look for hypocrisy. You know, like if you if you're supposed to be an ethics person and then you're unethical, that seems to be, that seems to be a problem. So I do my best, but I'm not I'm not perfect at it. Um, right. And uh, there, you know, I teach this often. I do some some seminars and training on professional ethics. And this is true in all professions, like doctors have special responsibilities because they represent the profession. Cops have special responsibilities. Lawyers have special responsibilities because when one cop does something bad, then everyone says, look, all cops are like that, right? Or if a doctor does something immoral then people say, oh, look, doctors, you can't trust them. So, you know, I I kind of feel that and I teach it. Um, But... (laughs) Um, I don't claim to be perfect, you know. Yeah,
0: it was definitely a loaded question, Um, but I think the question raises a secondary question, which is if someone who is an expert in ethics would say, well, I'm, you know, maybe marginally better than the average person in making ethical decisions, what then is the purpose in studying ethics other than as a kind of you know, postmortem diagnosis of humanity. (laughs) I mean, is there prescriptive solutions in there that you think can improve human behavior?
1: That, you know, the way you put that is, is kind of on target there. The postmortem thing, right? It's a lot of what we do is judge after the fact, right? Let me, let me be really clear. Nobody ever calls me up and says, hey, what should I do? Like, it doesn't work. the The ethics professor is not the personal advisor. Like, I don't work, you know, no one has me on retainer and says, hey, what should we do? I'm not like a watchdog. I'm not a, you know, there are these governmental ethics uh, watchdog people. What academic ethics people do is we criticize. So it's a lot of critique and it's after the fact, you know, Um, something goes wrong and then let's, let's diagnose what, what what went wrong. Let's see what kind of character flaws there were. And then let's teach people about it so they can do better. but it's never—it's um, not—it's not really prescriptive in the sense that, like, I never write policy. You know, I'm not—I'm not helping to write legislation. What what we do at the academic level is look at much more general and broad. Um, you know, how were these decisions made? What were the values? And then what went wrong when something goes wrong? What the, how did people get led astray? So there's a lot of um, after the fact judgment. Which some people will say, "Well, that's easy." You know, <laughs> it's easy to be a critic, much harder to be an agent. You know, so um, I realize that. And part, and you know, I teach mostly undergraduate students, and the hope is when we look at the way things go wrong, then maybe we learn and do better in the future. But um, you know, it, it's an ongoing process, and um, the only way you learn to be a better person is to make some mistakes too. You know,
0: um, right right? Then that's the best teacher. And it's, it's interesting because I feel like some people think, uh, you know, ethicists are kind of like compliance officers at a corporation where they're kind of legislating rules. So there's no lawsuits. Um, but that's, that's a, that's a different profession in many ways. So how do you distinguish from what you do versus someone that works in compliance?
1: Yeah, that's the human resources, you know, that's the management kind of, um, and I know some of those people and they need those people, right? You need, that, that has to happen. And the, the training, like they do a lot of, you know, ongoing training um, for folks in businesses and in professions. Um, what I do when I'm teaching ethics and writing about this stuff is, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at really 30,000 foot level. Like what, what kind of theories are being employed? Um, what are the systems in place? How do we change those systems? Is it even possible to change those systems? What don't we know? Um, how do the facts connect to the values? You know, those are the kind of philosophy questions. And you know, I mean, like a great example—if um, you don't mind—a little story I've, I've been yeah, teaching. Please. Plato. So Plato and Socrates, you know, these ancient Greeks. There was some really bad stuff that happened in Athens. So there was this bad general named Alcibiades. He betrayed the city and he went over to the Spartans. Like he betrayed Athens. And he was a student of Socrates. And people blamed Socrates for what Alcibiades did, betraying the Athenians. And Socrates and Plato were like, well, you know, it's not our fault. (laughs) You know, we're teaching people about big theories and we can't really, we're not not controlling people's lives, you know. And it's not, like you said, it's not a matter of compliance. Philosophy doesn't, doesn't do that. Yeah. It's much more open-ended, you know. Um, and sometimes there's more questions than there are answers, too. And then someone comes along, like Alcibiades betraying the city, and Plato and Socrates were not happy with that. But what are they going to do? You know, it's they're just uh, they're just teachers. They're not parents. They're not priests, um, nor lawyers or sheriffs. You know, so. I don't know if that, that helps explain a little bit.
0: It reminds me of that, um, I'm forgetting the Greek playwright that wrote uh, Clouds. Who is that? Sophocles. Yeah. It's kind of the message there a little bit with the father going to Socrates and teach me how to get out of debt. Um, if you haven't read Clouds, there's this great um, translation that I read of it recently uh, that kind of made it really crude and crass uh, to try and you know, get, get, get you to see how it would have been received uh, by Greek theater watchers. Um, but I think that's similar to, uh, the kind of error that people make when they walk into therapy and go, uh, tell me what to do. You know, I've got this big life decision coming up and, you know, I don't want to have any autonomy over my choice. Why don't you tell me what to do? And then I'll disagree with you and know what I really wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, I feel like people, <laughs> that's the way people approach uh, therapy, uh, many of the things in life, but I think, you know, to do ethics well, or to do, you know, to really engage in therapy, it's more about trying to take a step back, uh, look at things from 10,000 feet and say, okay, what are the different currents going on in my life that are affecting how I make my decisions?
1: Yeah, no, and it's like um, that therapy thing, that that, that analogy is a really useful one. Um, It's also like with priests and confessional, I mean, there's a lot of people we go to for advice, And they can give us advice, but it's up to us to take the advice, right? I mean, like you say, you just want to go in and get your own uh, assumptions reconfirmed. Or sometimes you just want to be absolved of your guilt. You know, someone says, well, okay, we understand. It's too bad you did that. And then you go home and do it again, you know? (laughs) Um, Right, right. And the the therapist, the teacher, the priest, you know, the best friend who helps and holds your hand during a crisis. you know, we do our best to give good advice, but ultimately, like, we're really not responsible for what the other person does, you know, um, like it or not, we're all, we're all agents on our own in the world, you know?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting problem. And it, I think it comes from a sense of insecurity, too, um, about, you know, what we're doing in this world and what what we're trying to achieve. I, I do want to make a transition, though, to talking about uh, pacifism, which is something I've had. Uh, you know, chance to think about m- both marrying a Mennonite, uh, but also, um, <laughs> yeah, going going to a seminary uh, where there's quite a few of those folks teaching. Um, and, and one thing that always bothered me um, when we talk about pacifism is, you know, I, I, I just remember um, one of the first professors that I heard kind of lecture on this topic. Uh, she's a really good uh, theologian. Her name's Aaron Defoe-Hunter. And she teaches uh, at Fuller Seminary where I went. Um, and I, I, I just had this moment or this flash when I was in the classroom, like sitting in the first world um, where most people in the room had never encountered a, um, a situation where violence was an actual choice. Um, living in a world that was created by military conquest of native lands of another country, Mexico, and if you want to go even deeper, um, you know, on our flag in California, and I gripe about this, in my other podcast, the history of California. Um, yeah, our our state flag is basically a flag that was raised by insurrectionists, you know, that were taking over a sovereign state and holding people hostage. You know, given all of that, how can anyone? In the first world, call themselves a pacifist, and I and that was the question that I raised because I don't know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, can you be a pacifist if you've never had to make the choice? Can you just have like, oh, if if this were to happen to me at some point, if I was walking down the street and someone shoved me or pulled a knife on me, and I had the opportunity to strike them or do something, um, and I made that choice, then I might become a pacifist. But before that. Am I, am I, can I call myself a pacifist at that point?
1: Yeah, no, these, these are great questions. Um, we need like two years to answer them, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. No, I understand. I understand. Just, just a, a broad uh, yeah. kind of uh, stroke across this.
1: No, it's, you know, um, the, the one thing I, I will uh, say is there's a difference between a personal commitment to nonviolence and a critique of war. So one of the questions is what kind of pacifist are you? Is it about personal nonviolence? I mean, all the way at the level of being a vegetarian, you know, mm-hmm. training your dog nonviolently. I have a friend who's a, a nonviolent dog trainer, you know, like that can that can happen. Or is pacifism really just about war? Um, and all kinds of levels in between. It seems to me, with regard to your first. Point about where we sit as you know people who now inherit the results of war. That one of the things we can see is that war often was unjust. So, like your example of California and the conquering of California. Uh, most people in retrospect, here we are again, like the post-mortem diagnosis. In retrospect, we'd say that that this stuff was probably unjust. Um, again, how can we judge? I mean, there's all kinds of cultural and historical problems. What can we say about contemporary systems of violence and war? And then we look at like, you know, I mean, the Iraq war, the invasion of Afghanistan, other, you know, American um, war making. And mostly it doesn't live up to the standards of the just war theory. So even the the defenders of just war will say, well, these really weren't just wars. Um, Further point about this is that there are systems in place, like, you know, half the tax dollars we pay goes to support the defense industries one way or another through, you know, Bill, I mean, it's, it's the active duty military. It's paying for veterans care. I mean, you know, a lot of the, our system is built on military institutions, the so-called military industrial complex, right? Um, How does that function in our lives? And we can't escape it. You know, Jordan as. Here we sit in Fresno, California, and the airplanes fly over. You know, every day I hear those those mm-hmm. warplanes go over my head. I can't do anything about it, you know. Yeah. Uh, These systems are much bigger than we are, you know.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's what we're having is kind of the Daniel Goldhagen debate, which is, uh, he wrote this book, I don't know if you're familiar, called Hitler's Willing Executioners. And it was a very controversial book because it made the case that, you know, the people that were manufacturing the chemicals, say – that were then later used at Auschwitz or uh, Dachau or wherever, um, they were part of the system and were as guilty, uh, you know, for the Holocaust as the people that turn the levers in the chambers that release that gas. And so then, but then that raises the obvious ethical question is how far do you have to abstract yourself before you become innocent of what's going on in the world? And that, I mean, that doesn't seem like a, you know, an easy equation to solve or one that anyone would ever agree upon, you know, this is the threshold for when you become innocent. Um, but it does raise a question that if you are participating in a system like how much blood is on your hands or is it um, you know, or or is it just <laughs> I mean it's because we're all connected. So obviously if that you know, it's kind of the butterfly effect of, you know, we're all related to each other uh, in, you know, global commerce or whatever. Um, and my tax dollars go to pay for those planes that fly over. Um, but what do you think about that hypothesis? Are are the people that make the chemicals just as guilty as the person that pulls the lever?
1: Well, it's, um, (laughs) it's complicated, right? So that's a little bit of a cop-out, but, um, uh, there's so, ma- there's so many systems of power and um, oppression and violence that we all participate in all the time. So you have to do your best. You know, this goes back to like, what can the ethics professor, what can we do? Well, we do our best to make a difference where we can make a difference. So let me then go back to the personal nonviolence side. The reason I'm a vegetarian, I can do that. Like if there's one way that I can kind of take some violence out of my life, I can choose not to eat animals. Um, You know what I thought you were going to say about the California flag is the grizzly bear is extinct in California, right? The the grizzly bear on our flag, we don't have them here, which is really the flag is a sad tribute to the extinction of a great mammal, you know? And Um, I don't
0: know to interrupt you. I don't know if you know who that grizzly bear is on the flag. Uh, He was actually the last grizzly bear that was in the wild in California and was captured and was put on display in the San Francisco zoo until he died in captivity. So it really is uh, a flag of a prisoner <laughs> in a lot of ways, which is awful to think about.
1: I know. I, yeah. That story sad. I think it was like William Randolph Hearst or somebody. Who
0: yeah. paid hired some dudes to hunt him down in the Santa Barbara mountains or something. It's so
1: sad. It's, it's, it's very a very sad, sad story. story. So, you know, but what are we going to do? We're not going to like, take the flag down. I mean, how are we going to change that flag? You know what I mean? That's, that's beyond my capacity as a a citizen and a human being. So we do our best to make a difference. So what does it mean to be a pacifist? So then, you know, like, well, speak out against war when it seems unjust. That seems to me something that every citizen can do, you know, some of the people like, you know, you mentioned the Mennonites and Quakers and others. Some become declared conscientious refusers right they you know they refuse to sign up for the selective service and some go so far as to stop paying their taxes which will get you in trouble (laughs) you know the, the irs will get you so there's a lot of difficulties there um and you know what i do is just you know i'm i'm a writer and a teacher so i talk about it and write about it but Again, I know I'm not perfect. Back to Hitler's willing executioners, you know. If only more of the intellectuals of Germany had written against and spoken out against what was happening in Germany in the 1920s. I'm talking before 1933, right? Yeah, beer Uh,
0: push and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, this, you know, and this has been then where we are in terms of American history in the last four years or the last, Thirty years. I don't know how you know how deep you want to go into this, but um, you know, we when we see something that's wrong and immoral, we need to call it out, you know, and call it out in public. Carefully, thoughtfully, you know, um, and if if, if you're going to be a committed to anything, whether it's nonviolence or something else, that's kind of what you have to do. Yeah. So well, you know, I mean, that's what I've,
0: go ahead. I was just going to say that you know that stuff does work. I mean, if you think about a topic like gay marriage in the 1990s versus where we are now, you know, 2021. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a dramatic change in policy or whatever, or, or vegetarians for that matter, you probably were, would have been a microscopic. You and the seventh day Adventists would be a microscopic minority. Um, but now, you know, uh, I feel like every third person I know is a vegetarian or Maybe that's just my circles that I run in. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think those things happen. And, you know, I mean, you look at like the work of Peter Singer or somebody uh, writing about those issues and it, it can change people. I mean, I know, you know, I was sadly, I'm, I'm one of those lapsed vegetarians. I was a, a lapsed vegan. Um, and I, you know, I read one of those books, those books that destroy your psyche and destroy your sleep. Honestly, the sleep is the worst part. You know, you think about all the, you know, your personal farm, you know, like I had this theory for a long time, um, you know, regardless of my metaphysical beliefs, you know, I had this theory that, um, you know, I would purgatory was like, uh, you know, having a reparative relationship with each of the animals that I ate. And I had this whole like universe that I created in college when I became a, a vegan. Um, I don't even know where I'm going. All that to say is I do think that the written word does have an effect on people, especially, you know, but part of the problem is, is that our society isn't really, I mean, it is a literate society. I mean, there is a subset uh, that looks to books like that for, you know, ethical positions or beliefs or whatever, but most don't.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, this is, um, I mean, a big, this is a big problem about education in general. It's a trickle down process, you know. You, I mean, I have a. I teach a class currently with three hundred students, online in this Zoom environment. Mm -hmm. Some of them are just phoning it in. I know. I mean, literally zooming it in, right? They're just, um, they're going through the motions. That happens every semester, whether I'm in on Zoom or face to face. But some of those students, we read Peter Singer. Some of those students read Peter Singer, and it changes their way of thinking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it one? Is it 30? I mean, I don't know what the number is, but all you can do is keep doing it, you know,
0: yeah,
1: Just like, um, you know, my newspaper column, uh, you know, most people, by the way, no longer subscribe to the newspaper. So the audience is shrinking, but a few people read it. And every so often I'll get a, a email or someone and they'll be like, what you said on Sunday made me rethink something I'm like, okay, good. One out of, you know, every month, once a month, I don't know, it's even more than it happens, but somebody changes their mind from something that you write. That's so cool. You know, you made a difference in someone's life. Um, And
0: the the kid that reads Peter Singer in your class might go home uh, for Thanksgiving, that first holiday and bring home a Tofurkey. And at first their parents might be what in God's name happened to you at that university we're paying for. But then, you know, they might make a really good yam that doesn't have any animal products. And then their family's like, well, that's, that's great. And then maybe their mom starts to think about it like what book did you read or what book did you read in that class? So things happen. Um, And I, I I do see it as, you know, peer to peer influence, you know, and you only have to really reach one person in a group for that person to then be affecting the whole group. Um, So I do think they're you know, I, I think we started this whole conversation about pacifism as in kind of a, uh, a, a dark place, but I, I do think there is hope um, because one person doing something the right way or making the right ethical decision, um, that can't be understated in importance, I don't think so. Um, I wanna transition now to one of my favorite segments which is called overrated versus underrated where I ask you, uh, or give you a series of topics and ask you whether they're overrated or underrated. These are both people and topics. Um, some of them more controversial than others. Uh, so the first one that we'll start with, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, overrated or underrated?
1: Okay, I think overrated.
0: Okay, why? Do I get to explain? yeah, yeah, yeah. Why?
1: You know, there. I mean, there. Well, <laughs> he comes up in certain contexts. Usually, often a certain political or theological context. Um, and I think maybe he gets more credit in those contexts than the influence he actually has in the larger world. Okay. That, that makes sense.
0: And who was he? Why, why does he have so much uh, sway or clout amongst, you know, I, I mean, it's political domain and also theological domain.
1: Yeah. Well, if I'm not mistaken, he's he sort, in terms of the pacifism and just war conversation, he's a defender of a just war kind of framework. Um, and I think some of the conservative, using this term loosely, conservative theologians and defenders of just war, for example, will look at him as providing a kind of realist approach to thinking about um, man in the world or whatever that phrase is. Um, realism is important. Um, can't be, it can't be dis- easily dismissed, but most people are not, you know, immersed in that. Um, framework in terms of polit- political philosophy and ethics. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, obviously you and I are not sitting in the situation room uh, making decisions about whether to drone strike someone. Um, so that's not our, our domain. Um, but I think regardless, um, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that being in the situation room uh, kind of makes you above the ethical consequences or implications of your actions. So having power doesn't make you suddenly kind of above, you know, the kind of the, the dark night Batman moment where, you know, the the one guy that's appointed above the Republic to break all the rules and save, save the Republic from itself. You know, that kind of uh, re I, I, don't know if you'd call that realism, but that kind of like, we just have to do what we got to do in order to preserve civilization mentality. I I, I feel like that, that's used fast and loose, and it doesn't really have much ethical grounding to it.
1: Yeah. Well, when I, when I talk about realism with students, I'll bracket it and put it outside of ethics. It's a different story. Now it's about strategy. It's about um, power. It's about um, uh, crisis resolution. I mean, how, there's a variety of ways you can talk about this. And maybe it's necessary. I mean, maybe that you have to, you have to have that somewhere, you know, at some point there are necessary things, you know, we need right. food, we need air, we need water. But ethics, ethical judgment is different than that. Um, and I think, you know, now we're going theological, but, you know, my interpretation of Jesus is, you know, I, there's something other, <laughs> you know, there's something right. else besides just pure necessity and life itself.
0: Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to walk, walk around the woods with, uh, you know, uh, St. Francis on one side and then Reinhold Niebuhr on the other. And you're starving to death and there's a deer and there's a rock, you know, and just having the conversation with the three of you might be an interesting conversation. Um, so the next topic, uh, overrated versus underrated, highly paid college administrators.
1: (laughs) Well, I think overrated in the sense that they're overpaid. Um, okay. If, that, if my if my interpretation of your question yes
0: yes so 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 why because there is a defense of uh, administration which is in order to make these large institutions run well you have to hire highly talented people and they require high compensation. What what's wrong with that line of reasoning?
1: Yeah, no, that I mean that's you know that makes sense. And and frankly, education is underfunded. <clears throat> in a number of ways, right? Connecting to our previous conversation about defense budgets, right? Right. It'd be better if we built more universities than more bombers, in my opinion. But um, what happens, I think, sometimes is that there's a sort of self-justification of administration, where since they exist, then they find things to do. And when they find things to do, it makes more work for the rest of us because now we have to write reports for them that they don't read. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating. A yes, little
0: bit. of course. Yes, of course.
1: Um, I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, the one thing I think that is different uh, in universities now in comparison to when I went to college in the eighties is we have a lot more support for students, counselors, advisors. Um, they can get in and see deans and, you know, I mean, like I didn't, we, I never had an advisor when I was an undergraduate. you know, just, Sign up for classes and wish for the best kind of thing at UCLA. Um, so the administration has come with a proliferation of support staff, which is really great for students. Um, does it teach them anything? You know, where Where's the learning happening? That's the real question, I guess, with regard to this issue about administrators. And um, I'd rather see more tenured faculty you know, higher tenure density. I'd rather see more experts teaching students and smaller class sizes, you know, stuff where it's really about the learning. Right, Um, right. Yeah.
0: Next one, uh, overrated versus underrated, reading ancient philosophers.
1: Underrated, we need more of that.
0: (laughs) Okay, why do we need more of that?
1: Yeah. I, well, I'm teaching an ancient philosophy class this semester, so. Uh, <laughs> right.
0: Okay. So this is, I, mean, I guess, your defense of your uh, course schedule.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he, here's the thing. Uh, it depends what we mean by reading, right? So um, is it just for purely historical antiquarian interests? That's irrelevant. Like, who cares, right? I mean, just because there were some dead people that said these things, why does it matter, right? Mm-hmm. But, Two, two answers, There are two points about this. One is the American system of political life depends upon a certain reading of the ancient world, both the Christian and the Greek heritage, the Roman heritage. The founding fathers designed this country based on some models that they took from the ancient Greeks. They read Greek philosophy. They read Roman philosophy. They read Christian philosophy. Um, so we learn a lot about our own country by looking at those ancient texts. But more important point, which is that those guys lived interesting lives that we can learn from. You know, when we study um, Socrates or Diogenes the Cynic or, you know, some Stoic philosopher, we can actually learn ways to live that are useful, even today, despite all of our technology and all the changes. Um, They provide good models for living well.
0: Yeah, the only counterpoint that I would raise to you, which is that I hate reading Aristotle. He is, he is so boring, and I prefer to read philosophers who have read Aristotle and then make him interesting for me. Like um, Edith Hall, who's I don't think a philosopher, but a classicist, uh, wrote this great book called Aristotle's Way, where she made the case for Ar- Aristotle's relevance to the modern world. And I was like, this is the way I want to process Aristotle. So I don't want to go read his ethics like as much as they are important they're boring as hell and I just I can't I I mean if you want a good if if Ambient is not doing it for you anymore um, and you want to go to sleep at night just grab grab his ethics before you go to bed it'll put you right out and so I you know I I agree but I also think you know it's I think college is probably the best time to do it. So reading it in a community of people, uh, trying to read some of these Greek philosophers on your own can be really challenging. And I, I don't want to turn people off to it. So I, 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 for me, it's a little bit like I want people to read it uh, maybe one step removed if you will. And that's similar to saying, you know, someone saying, yeah, I want to learn about history. So I'm just going to go read a bunch of primary sources. it's like, Oh God, don't do that. You know, like you, <laughs> you're never going to read history again because it's not going to make any sense. It's all going to be fragmentary. So. Yeah,
1: yeah no, I totally agree with you on that. And in fact, um, the war. I mean, worse than Aristotle is Kant or Hegel or these oh, you know, God. Germans. Um, I've kind of changed my teaching approach on this. I, I want students to encounter the primary sources, but I want them to learn the ideas. Mm -hmm. And this is the era of Google and hyperlinks. So however they learn the ideas, that's the main thing. And if that means they have to look at, you know, the Wikipedia page or, I mean, some Wikipedia is useful, but better Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy or whatever, if they need to read about Aristotle, that's fine as long as they learn it. Yeah. One thing I'll suggest if you're, if you're interested, I'm encouraging my students to look at, um, I don't know if you can see it on my camera here. No, it doesn't show I cannot. up. It's called The Lives of Eminent Philosophers by Diogenes Laertius. He, was, he wrote this in the second century um, CE. So he's like 500 years after Aristotle and Plato. And he tells all these really cool stories about these guys. Like Socrates had two wives he tells the story about why Socrates got a second wife, like interesting stuff about their lives may or may not be true.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're teaching ancient Rome, you give them Suetonius and they read about the Caesars. And a lot of that is, you know, uh, New York post style, uh, (laughs) you know, facts are fast and loose, but it gets them interested and it also um, kind of, Gives a gives a description of the ancient world, at least in terms of how they talked about things, thought about things, how lewd and crass they were. You know all these different things you learn about the Roman world. Even if you know uh, what Caligula didn't even you know kill everyone at the dinner party. If that didn't actually happen, that's okay. You're still learning something about you know the ancient Roman world. But let's go yeah, on. And it's like, go ahead. Okay, oh, go I'm ahead. sorry. Go ahead.
1: Go ahead, Jordan. I'll, I'll wait for you.
0: Okay. Uh, this next one, you know, we just talked about ancient philosophers, and this is going to be a total left turn. Uh, me and Ed's Pizza, overrated or underrated?
1: Uh, I'm not a fan. I don't really like it.
0: <laughs> so it's it's overrated.
1: Is it rated? I don't know. Do people like it? <laughs> <laughs> That's,
0: I mean, I've been asking this one a lot because when I moved here, my, my wife uh, came to me with the gospel of me and Ed's, and I rejected it. You know, I said no. Um, because I was used to really great New York style pizza in LA or like uh, what's that kind of pizza called or the um, Neapolitan pizza, you know, so, you know, re, you know, fancy good pizza. And then I show up and there's this me and Ed's pizza with the weird breading around the crust. And I'm like, what is this? I don't want it. And I've become, I've become a believer. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a disciple of, of Ed. Um, and so I'm just curious why, why you don't like it.
1: Yeah, I it's I don't know. I don't like the I think I don't like the cornbread sprinkled on the crust. I don't know, that turns me off. It seems a little greasy. I don't know. You know what we I've been eating is um Piology. I that's oh. now that's our go-to place for pizza. Um Because the crust is really good there,
0: <laughs> and it's probably better for vegetarians as well um you know i me and eds is kind of designed for the the everyday Fresnan that you know probably eats meat three times a day um, that's really right all right, two more uh, overrated versus underrated before we get back to our uh, other questions um tenure as a gateway to creativity overrated or underrated
1: um I guess I would say overrated okay because you don't have to have tenure to be creative i I think there's this sort of fear that some people have of like you'll get fired from your job or what universities don't work that way as at least state universities don't work that way you're not going to get fired for doing something creative um uh, but there is a kind of freedom that comes from tenure um you're just not worried about looking for a job. (laughs) so That's huge. But, you know, I think the reality is good scholars, um, good scientists, good artists are going to be doing their work whether they have tenure or not, because it's about the work. It's not only about the job prospects, you know? And I've seen it happen the other way around where people get tenure and then just check out because it's like, well, okay, I got tenure. Now I don't have to do it, you know? So, yeah.
0: So is it, is it kind of an illusory incentive that's not really there, even though it's kind of portrayed as such?
1: Um, it's, it's very, it's important in the life, in, it's important in your economic life. And let's face it, we need jobs, you know, people need jobs. Um, uh, especially in the humanities, jobs are very hard to find. Philosophy jobs, the worst of the humanities, like there are none. <laughs> um, So if you can get tenure as a philosophy professor, it's a wonderful thing, Um, but you can, um, it's not, tenure doesn't change anything, right? You're you're gonna do your work no matter what you were doing anyway. Um, You know, you you get some privileges, the the higher up you go the the academic feeding chain, Um, but good scholars are gonna keep doing scholarship pre-tenure, post-tenure, and then some people are gonna just kind of phone it in once they get tenure. Not a lot. I mean, I, that's a little bit of a uh, caricature, but it happens also. So I guess the
0: idea is a little bit that if you don't have any, you know, uh, if you have, if you have job security, you're much more likely to, you know, speak openly about uh, controversial topics or push a discourse in a way that you wouldn't, if, you know, you didn't have job security, I guess in certain domains, the way scholarship is set up, it would be, you know, <laughs> I mean, in, in, in the engineering department, they're probably not waiting for tenure going, finally, I can challenge something in engineering. you know, it's, it's probably not part of their, you know, I mean, sure. There's, I'm sure there's humanities departments where that might be a, have a, have a bigger role to play, but most departments aren't like that.
1: No. And, um, and you know what, the courage to speak up and innovate Either you have it or you don't, in a sense. I mean, you know, tenure or no tenure, um, some people are going to be cutting edge and challenge the status quo, and then some are not. I guess, I mean, I'm trying to think of my own life. Um, as I got tenure twice, <laughs> I had tenure at, at UW Green Bay, and I came here to Fresno State and had to get tenure all over again. Um, it's a long and complicated story <laughs> involving. Uh, a brutal process of going through that whole whole thing twice. But um, once I got tenure, that didn't change anything because I was a productive scholar and I think uh, innovative teacher, you know, so I did that before I got tenure. I did it after I got tenure. Didn't change anything in my career, I guess. And also, you know what? I mean, okay. Personal confession. I had a hell of a time getting a philosophy job. And so I actually, for a long time, didn't believe I would get a job teaching or writing and I kind of didn't care. Like I was at the point of like, whatever, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if I make money, I'm going to make money or not. Um, which is a kind of lesson that comes from failure. You know, like when, when life is hard and you fail a number of times, eventually you just say whatever you're going to do what you're going to do. You know, (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I do have a question and it's, it's one that's, um, you know, as recently coming up uh, in thinking about poetry, I, there was a famous article that came out in the Atlantic in the '90s uh, about the state of poetry um, and the problems with having most major poets being academics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in that, it it creates a kind of a world where your uh, you know the poetry you produce is mattering for tenure, but not uh, for the art itself. Um, and it, it raises questions. Um, you know, do, do we need more philosophers who are bums? You know, do we need more kind of loser jobless philosophers out there? And maybe that's what Reddit is. Um, but, uh, you know, do, do you see a problem with kind of the academization of philosophy and poetry and some of these fields?
1: Yes, I do. Um, and it depends what we mean by poetry philosophy, right? So, um, academic philosophy, terribly boring. It doesn't produce, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change people's lives. Let me be really blunt about my my own profession. And I've written a lot of boring academic philosophy (laughs) that no one reads. I mean, like the readership on philosophy articles, you're lucky if like five people ever read your article. And the, those five people are just people are going to write another boring article that no one else is going to read, you know? Yes. Citations. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I have a suspicion that in the arts uh, that happens also where, um, you know, there's these very obscure poetry journals and, um, but that, that part is sort of a, a, a necessary feature of back to your question about tenure, there needs to be professional standards. So when, Philosophers publish philosophy articles in philosophy journals. It's not for the general audience. It's to prove that you know what you're doing as a scholar and an expert and a professional. So right. the, the article gets published. Now you can certify that I know what I'm talking about because the, the other professionals in the field approved the article. Right. And then there's real philosophy. <laughs> These right. are, this is the philosophy that's lived in the streets by human beings, you know. And some of, in my mind, some of the most influential thinkers were not scholars, you know. I mean, I love to read Emerson and Thoreau and, um, you know, the kind of poet vagabonds, you know, like Jack Kerouac, Gary Schneider. Like these people really turned me on in terms of ideas. And they weren't uh, professors, you know, they didn't get tenure. Thoreau never Didn't even have a job (laughs) anymore. You know, he sold pencils, I guess, did did some serving, but he wasn't a, um, he wasn't a scholar and that guy wrote some amazing things that changed the way you live, you know? And that's really what philosophy, like the deep sense of philosophy is it should affect your soul. Tenure is a whole different thing. Academic philosophy is a whole different thing.
0: Yeah. I remember, um, you know, every podcast about philosophy always, has to have the bar in it somewhere. So I was at a bar in college and I uh, was having a beer with this guy that um, was a bit older than me, uh, just finished an MFA program. And I was, I was talking with him and I was like, what are you, what are you going to do next? And he's like, well, uh, you know, I got this job with uh, the city of Los Angeles. I'm going to, I'm going to work. I'm going to be, you know, it's this kind of like plumbing job. And I I looked at him and I was like, well, you just finished your MFA and create creative writing. What are you, you're gonna go be a plumber now? And he's like, Well, he's like, I haven't lived enough life to write anything meaningful. So I'm just gonna go be a plumber for a while. And you know, there's kind of that's kind of like the absurd, absurd anecdote you hear sometimes about, you know, people that want life experience, they go and find it in order to have something to write about. But you know, that that seems like <laughs> the cart before the horse. It feels like you need to have kind of Philip Levine style, right? kind of this life experience, and then you, and then you do these things.
1: But, you know, this, uh, I think, especially in, in art, um, and maybe poetry in particular, that um, you, you can, you can detect the depth of the person's soul in a sentence, you know what I mean? Like, if you can, you can, I mean, remember at the inauguration, this Amanda Gorman um, poem, she was awesome, you know? I mean, what she did was amazing. And the words were just right for the moment and so on. Um, Life experience shows up in people's words. Some young people have it, you know, I mean, like, you know, there's, there are these like, you know, prodigies that just that say the right thing at the right time. This is true with novels and, and music, right? Mozart, you know, like, I mean, who's going to say that Mozart needed to live longer before he should have <laughs> written his music, you know? Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but philosophy, let me go back to philosophy, which is, um, it, it does take some extensive experience to read and understand the history of philosophy that you can't do when you're 19 years old. Like, right. you know, you can't even do that when you're 29 years old. I mean, it takes years and years and years to get a sense of this vast thing called Western philosophy, let alone the world's philosophy. Um, but is that really philosophy? To be a scholar of the history of philosophy, is that really philosophy? Or could you just have a 19-year-old who gets it and who lives well and who, you know, is virtuous and kind and, you know, understands justice? Maybe. Um, yeah. I don't want to rule that out.
0: Well, I mean, it was interesting. I, I, I was reading uh, an obituary and I forget his name. He was the, he was the guy from the Yale school that was friends with Derrida that died this last week. I'm forgetting his name, but uh, in the, in the obituary was talking about how he was the kind of the, the big promoter of deconstruction, which is kind of this, you know, bastard child of philosophy that just, you know, no one understood. And one of the things that it mentioned in the obituary was uh, the when Dairy Dog got inducted into some organization, uh, he spoke with some of the people that inducted him that said that they never actually read him. <laughs> you know, they just assumed, you know, uh, because it was so hard to read uh, and understand. Um, but uh, let's, uh, let's, let's transition and talk about stoicism, which is an interesting phenomenon. Um, I'm gonna pause real quick. What are, are, do we have time constraints? Because we're kind of going a little bit longer than an hour.
1: Um, I'm happy to continue. That's fine. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk about stoicism. Um, so it's made an interesting resurgence in the world. Um, and particularly in Silicon Valley, there's been a whole bunch of books about living like a stoic that have come out. And I'm really skeptical of this. I, 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 to be honest, I think it's a crock. Um, I, you know, stoicism, I think has its place. But to live like a Stoic, I think, is a horrible way to live, personally. (laughs) Um, You know, to not enjoy pleasurable things, to enforce. It it feels like, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like Silicon Valley people got too much money. um, And then they realized it was all meaningless. And so they looked for the most kind of Spartan philosophy that they could find uh, to give them a sense of pain. And they just added it to their lives um, to kind of re- get themselves re in touch with reality. I can't, that's the only way I can explain it because I, as a philosophy, the idea that, you know, you should not really enjoy some of the moments. I mean, that's kind of a caricature of it, but it, it, it is a, can you maybe explain what stoicism is and what, what's your uh, diagnosis for why it's coming back?
1: Yeah. I, you know what you said, I've also been thinking about that. Um, there's a sense of meaninglessness in our culture and people are looking for sources of meaning and and traditional religion isn't working so well for some of these people. Um, You know, I mean, one way to deal with that loss of meaning is to go to church, you know, but no, we got a, a rapidly growing secularism and probably that's, what's going happening in Silicon Valley too, is it's a, it's a thoroughgoing secularism. But it can't just be about coding and making money, right? So right. like, what else is there? And it may just be a bit of a trend, like a publishing glitch that whoever wrote some of these books about stoicism just caught on, you know? There, was, there were some other books like popular philosophy. It was like Plato or Prozac was one of the titles I remember <laughs> from about 25 years ago. Um, What is Stoicism? Stoicism is a worldview that says that there is a a structure to reality, a natural law kind of hierarchy and order, that there's destiny and fate, and we're kind of destined to do our duty and to fit in as cogs in the machine. And um, there's a sort of sense of like, if there's freedom, it's just inner freedom. It's not freedom in like free expression. And it makes sense at this point in American history where um, there is this sense of systems of power that are out of control. And, you know, how do we change the world? Well, maybe we just retreat to the inner citadel. That's the phrase that I love about the Stoics, retreat to the inner citadel. If you're going to find freedom, it's going to be like internal freedom, but that's a cop-out. So now we got Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and all, you know, all this problem, um, you can't just retreat, <laughs> you know, you caused the problem in part, you know, we want you to engage and do something and make better systems, you know? So, um, yeah, I think I, that if anything, that's what worries me about stoicism is it's, it's duty based. It's like find your place and do your thing and shut up and don't complain and don't protest. You know, it's, it's really antithetical to all of the social protest stuff we've seen in the last year and it
0: feels like they're abstracting like that the big picture of of duty and roles you don't really get that in the literature cuz i've kind of perused it out of curiosity and it's it's more about just like it it just feels like rich guys that are like they're like oh god you know like i i don't know what to do and i you know i could lose all my money and how will i live and no you just got to build this inner strength so no matter what happens to you in this world you know but it's I don't know. I don't understand it. It bothers me. I mean, I feel like it also, like you're saying kind of cops out ethically because it just becomes narcissistic. It just becomes about you developing your inner stuff um, and just relegating all the ethical issues, the political issues, all of that domain to some other realm that's outside of your concern.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, and you know, if you think about um, in the ancient world when stoicism was, huge, very influential, it's under the Roman Empire. It's a philosophy that works for people living under empire. um, Because it tells you to just find your own inner strength. And then, you know, if you're a slave, continue to be a slave. If you're a slave owner, continue to be a slave owner. Don't rock the boat. And we need that. I mean, sometimes it's a great mood. I, you know, Emerson talks about philosophical moods. Sometimes the stoic mood is really helpful. You know, when things seem out of control, become a Stoic. <laughs> yeah, But it's, it kind of gives up on engagement. You know, it gives up on um, hope for change, really. That's the worry that I have about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, if you're looking for some meaning, there, there, there's, uh, I mean, beyond just the religious components of a Christian worldview, you know, that would be a controversial thing to uh, sacrifice yourself for other people uh, in empire um and there's a reason why they were killed so quickly and but i'm not a this is not apologetics for christianity but just to say that like there's nothing really that interesting to me at least about what stoics are doing or saying um but you know to uh challenge the you know capitalism and the military complex with kind of a you know it could be a buddhist it could be a christian worldview that's much more interesting to me but you know, I'm not, I'm not Penguin Schuster or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to make money selling books. So, I'm. it's not me. Let's, uh, speaking of, uh, capitalism and military complex, let's talk about uh, something that I've been kind of thinking about. These are the last two questions. Um, so in computers, there's this idea of Moore's law, which is that every year things get twice as fast or whatever it says. That's kind of, I'm sure that's a, um, a caricature of what it actually, uh, you know, the math behind it or whatever. Uh, but the idea that everything's getting faster and quicker and more efficient. Um, and it feels like at least in terms of, uh, the collateral damage from war and we're talking, we're kind of going back to just war theory here for a second. Um, things are getting more efficient. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, drone strikes or whatever, you know, before, maybe you had to raid a village, you know, if you go back a couple thousand years, if you, if you go back to, or, or the Mongols, for example, you know, they would have to kill so many people in order to get at the person within the city that they wanted to attack. Um, and there was tons of collateral damage uh, in the process, which means innocent people dying. Uh, it feels a little bit like the what's going on with increasing technology and with cyber warfare, drone strikes, all this kind of stuff. It feels like we're moving towards a universe in which we can be really precise, um, in war and conflict. Um, do you think, um, that if we can be precise, you know, there's some bad dude or something. Um, and this is all hypothetical. There's some bad dude. We can take care of that one bad dude, uh, without, having a war where there's lots of casualties and soldiers that are called up or whatever, mm-hmm. that just war as a theory might be more, uh, coherent or make sense. Does that, does that, does that compute? I, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, does the increase of technology mean that war will be better?
1: Yeah, uh, yes. I, I, I think that's a good idea. I think, um, what we, we do need more precise weapons if we're going to use weapons, right? Right. So the, you know, my, my own theory, you know, the, the theory I've defended, I call it just war pacifism, which is grounded in just war with the conclusion that most wars don't live up to the standards of the theory because those examples you gave, right? Like the, the theory says, don't kill innocent people, but if you invade the city, you're going to kill innocent people, right? So we see a lot of, collateral damage but where just war and pacifism converge is towards the development of more precise weapons with this huge caveat back to your worry or your your claim about technology and war's law and so on we're building more precise weapons but we're also building more deadly weapons right so along with drones we've got weapons of mass destruction you know i mean we still have massive nu- nuclear arsenals um, And what are we going to do when the robots and AI start taking over? It's inevitable, right? That we're going to not just have a drone pilot in Las Vegas guiding the drone, but that drone pilot's going to be assisted by AI. And these weapons are precise, but also deadly. There's a risk of it kind of getting out of control. So I think all of that has to be taken into consideration, but it's certainly better. So here's the issue about, you know, what's better versus what's um, ideal, right? So incremental change, it's certainly better to have more precise weapons, right? It's certainly better to have um, better intelligence, right? So intelligence gathering, right? If we can figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, separate them. All that stuff seems to me really good and important if we can kill fewer innocent people. Another issue that I'm worried about can we trust the high level decision makers to use these weapons justly, um, w- you know, in the scope of the just war theory? Yeah. One worry that a lot of my friends who are pacifists and critics of war have had is that drones actually make violence more likely because it's easier to send a drone in to kill someone than to send a real human pilot in to kill someone. So, you know, under Obama, for example, there was lots of drone strikes all over the place in Yemen and Somalia and other places, because it's kind of easy to send the drones in and you don't have to declare a war. And there was collateral damage despite the drones, right? So, um, you know, the drone pilot would attack a wedding party and there were innocent people at the wedding and so on. you know, if if <laughs> I guess here's the way to put it: if the technology were guided by moral uh, soldiers, moral drone pilots, and so on, that would be great. So we need increased technology, but we also need increased responsibility, increased education about moral limits, and ultimately, then that goes to the highest level, which is us, because we're citizens, right? We ultimately the. US military fights on our behalf we need good political leadership we need uh, educated citizens all of that also has to be in place and then last my last worry about this I'm really worried that technology increases really quickly but our moral capacity doesn't increase at all <laughs> right. you know we remain ignorant we remain um, self-interested uh, in which case even really great technology is going to be misused and abused.
0: Yeah. And I think I've got two points to say about it. It's one it's, you know, it's the ultimate question, right? Who gets to decide who is the bad guy, you know, yeah. and that's, that's the, that's the million dollar, billion dollar defense budget question. Um, you know, someone that, uh, you know, there's a, I'm forgetting his name is a very funny comedian, uh, who, um, uh, was talking about, and I can't remember, I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. It's so embarrassing. Uh, He was talking about uh, making jokes about when we initially invaded Iraq, um, how the media would use the word insurgent. And he was joking that, uh, you know, I don't have any insurgent friends, so you can kill all of those people. I don't even know. I don't have, you know, I don't know any insurgents. There's no insurgents on my block. Um, And, you know, the, the point underneath that is that, you know, the government is, picking who the bad guys are and making it vague as to who they're choosing. Yeah. Um, and then later he jokes about, you know, when you really see the insured insurgents, they're dudes in flip flops, a t-shirt and a backwards cap, you know, and that's the sad truth of a lot of those conflicts. And the second thing that I would say would be, um, you know, a lot of wars are often fight fought over territory, you know, and, you know, if we think about like the war, you know, I, I would call it a war with, Armenia and Azerbaijan that just was, you know, over the last couple months, which is just crazy that there was just this major conflict, you know, and it was just, I mean, COVID is dominating all of our brains or whatever. But um, in that situation, you can't really drone strike because you have mixed populace. uh, They're fighting over a territory that the Soviet Union gave one of them, but there's an ethnic group that lives in there, you know, and they're they're like, really, this is our land, even though, uh, you know, whatever Soviet premier told you that you could have this, it doesn't it doesn't apply to us. Um and that's not a situation in which efficient military uh weapons make a difference because you know this is a diplomatic issue, this is a humanitarian issue, this is a, you know. So I think wars are so complicated in that they have so many moving parts that even if you have the most efficient weapons in the world, A, it's not gonna tell you what to do, like you said. And then B, that's not the biggest problem you have, right?
1: Yeah, no, this point about um the Armenian conflict, almost any conflict, when you start really digging in, they're historically convoluted, to say the least. And it's never the case. I mean, I've really been thinking about this for years, trying to figure this out. Where is there one case where the the one side has absolute justice on its side and the other side is absolutely the bad guy? Even, you know, people bring up the Nazi case, you know, Nazis.
0: Right, that's the most common.
1: But the difficulty of that case is that um, the Treaty of Versailles and World War I and then the Franco-Prussian War, and, I mean, it just go. the history is so deep there and the conflicts are so, I mean, centuries long of conflicts, right? So the, the pacifist, my pacifist side says what we need to do is fix those Conflicts, right? And it's it's diplomatic, as you say. It's political. It's historical. It's cultural. It's social. It's economic. All of that stuff is where the real work has to be done. And by the time we get to Hitler invading Poland in 1939, it's way too late. You know, like mm-hmm. yeah, of course you got to respond to that. You, you know, something has to be done about Hitler invading Poland. But we should have fixed that in. I don't know, 1520, you know, you know what I mean? When the Holy Roman empire was having a problem with Martin Luther, you know what I mean? That's, it's that level of, I mean,
0: and then you talk about issues in the middle East, you know, you can just go back to the breakdown of the Ottoman empire and what, what great Britain did with, (laughs) I mean, a lot of the stuff that we deal with is, is out of touch Europeans, drawing lines, you know, if they'd just taken an art class and understood that you can't draw lines arbitrarily, uh, then we maybe have less conflict. Uh, That's a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek way of saying that, uh, there's a few people that have caused a lot of the problems. Um, and those problems are so complicated because of all of these layers of damage that's been done. Mm -hmm. Um, and oftentimes by people that don't even know, I mean, I I don't know if the dudes in Germany that were drawing the lines in Africa had ever been to a majority of the places that they were uh, slicing up. Um, but you know, a lot of the conflicts in Africa because of those lines.
1: Yep. no, you're exactly right that uh, and it's, and it's one generation to the next, and then it gets reiterated. And then we get confused by patriotism and um, religious, ethnic, uh, you know, identity, I mean, racism, all of this stuff comes in, and it makes it really difficult to judge. And then the wars break out, and it's too late at that point. And now we got suffering veterans, and you can't betray the veterans by giving up on the war. So support the troops, you know, I mean, it's so um, convoluted. So back, you know, like, what can I do about it as a human being? Just keep speaking out and saying, this is crazy, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, point out the craziness when it happens, you know?
0: Right, well, I'll, I'll give you just this opportunity right now. It, what, 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 is, what is the argument against the United States not invading Europe in 1944?
1: The the problem of the Second World War. Yeah. Well, the the cause may have been a just one, right? So, you know, Hitler was um aggressive, he invaded other countries, and he was murdering people in his own um, you know, the Jews and gypsies and so on. The problem is the method that we employed involved massive destruction of civilian infrastructure, uh, carpet bombing, fire bombing, you know. Got
0: it, yep.
1: yeah. So the real question is, even if you have a just cause, can you fight the war justly without causing collateral damage? Takes us back to your issue about smart weapons and so on. Um, And then let me throw this other little wrinkle, historical wrinkle in, which is that anti-Semitism, because people often say, well, Hitler killed the Jews. Therefore, you know, well, anti-Semitism was a European problem for hundreds of years. The British were anti-Semitic, the Americans were anti-Semitic. Um, that, some of that, I can't say, I'm not saying you could prevent the Holocaust because that, I mean, that's absurd, but some of the problems of Hitler's anti-Semitism could have been solved much earlier if people would have just gotten over anti-Semitism. Um, and like take in refugees, you know, these stories of Jewish refugees who are trying to come to the United States and turn back. Um, yes. You know, I mean, it's in other words, there's no good guy, no absolute good guy in the story. Although the Americans and um, the British certainly did have a just cause on their side, in terms of you know pushing back against an aggressive uh, Nazi force.
0: Right, and uh, anyone that's triumphal, you know, about World War Two, obviously uh, a couple different things. One, we could talk about Order Nine Six Six. Um, which was the order to, you know, round up Japanese in, uh, on the West coast and put them in internment camps. Um, But then obviously, uh, you know, the big thing that, and why we focus on the European theater in world war two is obviously the bomb. And, you know, what I, I, you know, as a public school teacher um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we have standards about it. We do, um, but it is, it is, an understated war crime that just kind of just you know, is glossed over. I mean, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, you you talk about you know you watch the the two the two famous World War II shows. You know, Band of Brothers and The Pacific, uh, HBO produced. You know, I mean, I don't know. Is The Pacific just a big justification? propaganda film for the bomb? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it feels a little bit like that. Um, yeah, no, that,
1: that it's, it is remarkable that no one else has ever used an atomic weapon in war besides us, you know? But that, you know, it wasn't only Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was the firebombing of Tokyo and, right. you know, lots, lots of Japanese were killed in, um, in the process of fighting that war yeah uh was japanese were the japanese bad guys to invade and attack pearl harbor yes they were right so just like you know you don't want to defend hitler you don't want to defend the japanese they were aggressive and they you know the rape of Nanking and some other yeah yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so um,
0: but we and we how we talk about it we remember the doolittle you know raid as like You know, we think of Doolittle like this, like heroic, like Mighty Mouse guy (laughs) flying over Japan, uh, versus what he was actually doing. And I, you know, I mean, it's this is a whole uh, can of rooms that we could talk about for a long time. Let's let's finish by talking about books. Um, I I like to end there because for me, you know, uh, podcasts are a lot of fun, but they're, you know, we 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 can only go so deep. And I think you know the real work of changing your mind uh, happens when you read, you know, good, long books. So what are some book recommendations that you have? And they can be about ethics or whatever interests you.
1: Yeah. You know, well, this, I, you know, by the way, how cool that you do this. This is what a great idea. You know what? Professors like this question. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, uh, there's so many books that I would recommend, but the one, you know, um, one of my favorite authors is Steven Pinker. Mm-hmm. who has written a couple interesting books connected to my work. So he wrote this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and then another book called Enlightenment Now. And Pinker, um, he, def- he straight up defends, like, reason, that reason will make things better and democracy will make things better and that we are getting better. So we're fighting wars more justly because of this weapons thing, for example we're more democratic than we used to be. You know, he, he tells a great um, story with lots and lots of data about um, the dawn of civilization. We're not there yet, but it's coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. And
0: <laughs> right. I, and, and Pinker is an interesting one. Cause I, I simultaneously agree, but I, you know, have a little bit of skepticism because I, you know, as a student of history, two things, one things, you know, can, can emerge that you don't expect, but two he's right that if you had a time machine and you could pick any period in human history to go to, you would always pick the present. You would never actually use that time machine because if you, if I dropped you off in medieval France, you know, the chances of you getting a disease and dying or the chance of, uh, uh, you know, some kind of night that you've wandered onto their feudal land, uh, chopping your head off or hanging you or putting you on a spike is high high enough that you wouldn't want to risk that even if it'd be cool to see all their armor and stuff and walk around and talk to people in old english or you know frankish languages i you know you just wouldn't want to go back then and that's i feel like the strongest argument that you can make is that you never want to go back in time you never
1: would <laughs> yeah i think that's right um although isn't the same thing going to hold 30 40 years from now people are not going to want to come back to this time either so that's true but, what I like about it is, what I like about his approach, he's, I call it meliorism. He's like, let's make the world better. It's getting better and we can make it better if only we we understand what we need to do to make it better, which is science and reason and democracy. Um, but the, the downside with those books, they're very, very long. Yes. A lot of data. So you can skim them. <laughs> you know, yes. Yes. The good news is skimmable. <laughs>
0: perfect well um thanks for coming on i really do appreciate it it's uh you know i i i think conversations like this which might be a little bit intellectual um compared to my some of my other episodes are are really important because um you know we we really do need to think about these issues um and have intellectual conversations in public because uh, they're not just reserved for the academy. And a lot of people will leave these kind of things behind them uh, when they go out and start working as an insurance agent or whatever, and they just live their lives, and their intellectual lives get checked at the door. But really, uh, that's just no way to live. And I, my, my main case uh, for uh, continuing education and continuing learning and continuing intellectual and engagement is that um, I have never met a person um, that is a lifelong learner that has ever been bored. Uh, People that are lifelong learners, they are, I feel like the most, the people that have the most uh, vigor to live. They're always looking for something, you know, like for me, lately it's been, um, I've been uh, kind of just throwing myself into opera on YouTube because I didn't realize how much opera there is. And I've been going through all Mozart, you know, he's the King of opera and I've been going through, I found these amazing recordings, opera recordings from the eighties and early nineties. And you know, I, so I just really, I I think that's the biggest case that I can make is you will never be bored again. Once you kind of open up your mind uh, to uh, the world of uh, Kind of adult learning, right? Because we all have, you know, had good and bad experiences in elementary, middle, and high school and college, um, you know, where learning was enforced. But once you, if you get to that place where you can really be an adult learner and, and learn just out of a sheer will to learn uh, without enforcement or out any pressure, you'll never be born again.
1: Right on. I think that's right. And, and you'll be a better citizen as a result, too, because you'll you'll be a little bit more circumspect and a little bit more stoic if you want to use that in terms of, you know, thinking things through before you judge. So I think that's very important.
0: All right. To close, where can we find your work and the stuff that you're working on and do you have any books in the works? Obviously you have articles that you're publishing regularly, but uh, are there any bigger projects in the works? Yes.
1: Well, so you can go to andrewfiala.com. I have a website, andrewfiala.com and, um, Subscribe to my blog. I post my Fresno Bee columns there, and I have a book that I just um, finished. It's not a philosophy book. It's like a fun book with pictures. It's uh, it's oh, called cool. Simplicity, and it's um, some nature writing. I walked the John Muir Trail one summer to hold most of the John Muir Trail, and I was reading uh, Chinese philosophy at the time, Taoism, and so I came up with this idea. It's called Simplicity. It's about you know. Living a simple life. And I'm writing a second follow up that I'm calling Compassion. And it's not quite what you think. So um, I'm working on it. It's about compassion. It's not, not touchy feely, it's a different kind of compassion. It's about making connections. So um, anyway, that's in the works. So you can, people can go to my website and find it or okay. Amazon.
0: One final question. Given that you taught in Green Bay, did you become a Packers fan?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Okay, is that last? Is it like a disease? Like you can't get rid of it? It's just permanent.
1: Yes, especially because my son was born there. So we we've been we were disappointed in uh, Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs. It was such a sad thing. But there's also this big problem with NFL and Black Lives Matter. I mean, (laughs) yeah, no,
0: that's that's a can of worms we don't need to open. All all I have to say is here's the final question then of the podcast. Should Aaron Rodgers leave? Is it time to move on?
1: <laughs> I love Aaron Rodgers. So we'll see. And also Devontae Adams. You know, he's our Fresno State guy. So um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Okay. I'll take that as
0: a no. Aaron, you should stay. All right. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it.
1: All right, Jordan. Thank you. Bye-bye. City left in the US, Fresno's best.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.
1: Fresno's best.